Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about Shopify's journey to becoming my Wall Street's first 30-bagger stock, the possibility of WeWork going public through a SPAC, and we talked to serial entrepreneur Norman Crowley about the future of the EV industry. So another Stock Club podcast, another elevator pitch that you've got bang on the money, Emmett. Um, in the last episode of Stock Club, you said that if you had to short a stock, you'd short L Brands or MicroStrategy. Well, just after the podcast went live, MicroStrategy stock went on to drop more than 20% in one day last week. Um How's that crystal ball looking this week, Emmett? Depends on what we're pitching, James. Do you want to give me a heads up? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, wise one, what do we short next? <laughs> well, Rory, you weren't too far off the mark either. I wasn't really following along, but I did see they, they dropped at one point. Did they have bad earnings, is not it? Yeah, I think their earnings came out. They dropped about 5% one day, so not too bad. We'll we'll give you a pass for that. Uh, Well, hold on. He was, uh, MicroStrategy isn't in the S&P 500, so obviously he was going to be more (laughs) volatile. (laughs) You have to think outside the box, Ori. So um, before we dig into the rest of today's episode, I want to first mention a huge milestone that we've just hit in the My Wall Street shortlist, our first 30-bagger stock. Since we added Shopify to our shortlist back in September 2016 at about $43 a share, it's been on an absolute tear. With the announcement of a new partnership with Facebook last week, Shopify jumped again and it finally crossed that threshold to become a 30x return for us. Um, And I think it's actually gone on further since then. Um, We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, February 17th and Shopify actually reported its earnings this morning, which will likely push the stock higher again. Rory, how different is the Shopify of today to the company that you analysed and added to the shortlist almost five years ago? Yeah, it's funny how we always talk about Shopify in terms of returns because that's just what investors constantly look at and they're constantly looking at the seeing those uh, those percentage numbers goes up and up and up and it's, I mean, it's up there with probably the best investment over the last five years, definitely. But yeah. we rarely kind of, I mean, we do look at it, but we rarely talk about the business performance. And so today, considering earnings was coming out like oh, about an hour ago, I did decide to kind of take a look back to September 2016 when we looked at Shopify for the first time and added it to the... Um, showroom uh, actually jumped a little bit ahead so I looked at the numbers for fiscal 2016 which is about two I think it was two reports yeah. after we recommended it the first time um, but that kind of aligns because they just released their 2020 fiscal report so back in 2016 they had total revenues of 380 million today they reported revenues of almost 3 billion for the year wow. Um, so not quite a ten, not quite a ten x growth in four years, but you know, there's uh, it's it's pretty pretty, pretty impressive. They had eighteen million in monthly recurring revenue back in two thousand sixteen. Now that's eighty two point six million, uh, and we know how hard it is to grow monthly recurring revenue in this business. Trust me, it doesn't happen easy. Uh, so that's quite an impressive number. Interestingly, in two thousand sixteen, their subscription solutions. So the revenue is broken down into subscription solutions and merchant solutions. And back in two thousand sixteen, they were pretty much fifty fifty. Now, Merchant Solutions is two-thirds of their revenue. Now, why is that important? Now, this is a little simplified, but the subscription part of Shopify's business is basically, I mean, it's onboarding, right? It's getting more people onto the platform. So the more people they get on, the more their subscription revenue grows. And and there is movement there for them to upsell people onto, you know, better plans and stuff like that. But the vast majority of subscription revenue is just getting new customers onto the platform. And that's very important, right? But the Merchant Solutions side of the business is where you see the value that Shopify is actually providing the merchant uh, in this scenario. And that that then translates actually to revenue for, for Shopify. So merchant solutions include payments, it includes capital, includes fulfillment, logistics, point of sale, gear, all that kind of stuff. Now, we know that management has told us a large percent of that solutions revenue comes through payments. And that is linked, of course, to gross merchandise volume. So basically, the more money that flows through the platform, the more payments there are. And the more money that flows through the platform is correlated to how good a product Shopify has. Yeah. Now, subscription revenue, we've talked about this plenty of times before, is always higher margin revenue. 
Um, and usually we want to see companies focus on growing that. You know, that's we always want them to go after the high margin revenue rather than the, the low margin revenue. But with Shopify, it's demonstrating that the merchants on their platform are succeeding. And that's a great thing to see. And, and that was often, sorry, Rory, to cut across you, but that was often one of the, the bear cases kind of charged against Shopify is that, you know, that the, the customers they were getting were low value customers, a lot of turnover in customers. Yeah, and well, the counter argument to that and the argument I've been making is that with a uh, product like Shopify, you want to see high churn. If you're not seeing high churn, it means you're not getting customers where you where you want to get them. You want to get customers when they're starting out, when yeah. they're small, and you want to help them grow. That's how a business like Shopify survives. So if they weren't seeing high churn numbers, you'd be worried. You'd be worried that some other company, WooCommerce or BigCommerce, are are getting customers at the right time. Um, but clearly that's not the case people mm. are floating towards shopify it's definitely owns the space at this at this time and i think it's up there probably with the most important businesses in the world right now it's i mean it's definitely in the top three because it's empowering a whole new generation of entrepreneurs and it's enabling the transition to a digital economy like no one else's and part of that is because you know it's it's very product focused it's not like in the old days where png could just rule the aisles by commanding all the shelf space there's infinite shelf space now and it's not like Amazon where you're constantly fighting to be kind of top of a search list. Yeah. What you're doing, it's all about generating demand for products. Um, and you can do that through various channels like Facebook and Google and that kind of stuff. But really it's about creating products that people want and delivering them and creating customer relationships in the meantime. So yeah. I don't know, I'm but, sure Emma would have something to say about the most important business in the world, but that's my pitch. <laughs> what do you think, yeah, Emma? Do you think well, Shopify is up there? Yeah, I do. I think it's up there. I mean, it allows allows your average if there's such thing average shop to compete on the against the amazon platform and it allows someone to actually have a chance at getting their product seen and built and optimized to a standard online that allows their their entire shopping experience to parallel that of amazon i mean i i'd love to find i'm shopping via shopify as opposed to amazon and just there's kind of a and i don't know if it's an anti-amazon movement but there is a sense of guilt that i feel when i'm buying something on amazon i'd far rather see my dollars heading towards a shopify powered retail outlet well talking as shopify is one of the most important companies around today and then amazon who you know recently reported 2020 revenues of nearly 400 billion dollars do you think rory that as shopify gets bigger that they are going to start kind of feeling more headwinds from Amazon in that competition? Or, you know, is, is it reductive to call them the next Amazon? Are they doing something completely different to Amazon? Yeah, I think they're, I mean, Amazon at the moment is an aggregator. Okay, so that's, it's basically taking all of everyone else's work and putting it together in one space and essentially making everyone compete against each other uh, for eyeballs. Yeah. Um, Shopify is much more of a platform. So, you know, the vast majority of people who shop on Spotify have no idea they're shopping on Spotify. You can't actually go, you can't buy anything on Shopify.com, you know. Yeah. Um, it's all in the background. And it's just enabling entrepreneurs to set up their own businesses, their own storefronts online, and then helping them through the entire process of, you know, getting the payments, uh, doing the shipping, doing the logistics. So, yeah, I think it's there are little apple and oranges. I can see where the comparisons come in sometimes. But Amazon, as we know, just this morning announced that they have purchased a, a German company, I think it was, called Cells. Yeah. Um, it was a small purchase now. And, and, and with the, you know, people are saying that they're going to start competing with Shopify. Amazon gave up on competing with Shopify years ago. Amazon had a kind of storefront, a storefront play going on. And they just saw that, that Shopify was winning that battle. So yeah, I do think Shopify is is in a different league. I think that they're going to continue to grow um because they've just they've got the momentum now and they've got they're doing everything right constantly. Yeah, absolutely. And then just Emmett, to go back to, you know, those 30x returns that we saw with Shopify. As, you know, as the person here who's been longest around in the game, I suppose, how often can expe- investors expect to see those kind of outside returns? Like, you know, this surely isn't a typical investment to to get such a return in such a short space of time you know is it something similar to a once in a lifetime investment as you saw yourself with netflix it's definitely not typical and in fact we're talking about it today because it has been our biggest winner so in the scorecard of my wall street with uh, i don't know 120 stocks that we've hand selected it is ranked number one so you know we're talking about the outlier and i think that you know 
I would I wouldn't say it once in a, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity by no means would I say that in a hundred stocks or so that we've chosen in let's say the five plus years that we're selecting them it was the biggest winner but I think that um, a retail investor the average person on the street can expect to find something that produces similar growth it's not something you can absolutely say is going to happen but um you might actually have several of them and you might have stocks that even grow way beyond 30x. So I think it's a realistic um, object, uh, kind of target for retail investor to try and find a few next Shopify's. Mm. And if they kind of position themselves at that point in the river where it is primed to actually um, to encounter businesses with the attributes of Shopify from five, six, seven, and even 10 years ago, well, then they have the best chance of doing, of having outsized returns. So like, I mean, one of the things that has differentiated Shopify, of course, Rory explained, you know, the business model and its growth, and that is absolutely clearly an attributing factor. But you look at a passionate founding CEO, Tobias, is it Lutke, is his pronunciation, right? Yeah, Lutke, yeah. So, yeah, Lutke. Like, he has basically built Canada's greatest success story of the last 10 years. But what is it about Shopify that we can go out and look for in businesses today? And it's just that, a passionate founding CEO who is mission-led, who has a vision of a future that their business can execute against. And there are lots of businesses out there. And if you buy enough of those businesses, that uh, are out to do something that's world-changing with an individual at the helm who's absolutely steadfast and you know resolved to get there. You will actually find you've invested in the next Shopify. You just don't know which one it is. You have to kind of buy several, and and ultimately your strategy will play out. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we look through like some of the some of the attributes of the companies that have done so well. You know, thinking of things like Netflix and. Um, Amazon and, and now Shopify, you know, the passionate founder CEO is pretty much always there. That's that's yeah. a that's a yes, big tick on yeah. the box. The the taking on massive incumbents against all the odds is definitely one that's in there as well. Uh, the massive TAM, like the just unbelievable optionality that these businesses had from day one, where they set out more on a vision with a with a broad vision, you know, of of changing the world, not just doing one small thing. Um, so if you keep looking for businesses doing that, you're probably going to hit a lot of big winners. Absolutely. So let's move on then. And longtime listeners of this podcast will probably remember that about a year and a half ago, almost every episode of Stock Club we published was dominated by news of WeWork and their hilariously abortive attempt to, and I quote, elevate the world's consciousness and try go public. Um, a lot has happened in the meantime, but recent reports are suggesting that the company is in talks again to try and go public, this time via SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company. Um Rory, I know you were a big fan of WeWork for all the wrong reasons. Um, with old CEO Adam Newman now gone from the company and, you know, the idea of remote work and decentralized offices much more accepted. Do you think now is the right time for WeWork to maybe go public? Well, I definitely know they're, uh, that company's never going to file an S1 again because yeah. the last <laughs> one was such a disaster. Um, yeah. Look, the, like the thing about WeWork was that it was a good idea. <laughs> like this idea was 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 following all the trends that we were seeing of of a diffusion of the workspace and people working remotely and people working abroad and provide and people working alone much more. You know, people just you know be doing freelance, doing gig work, all that kind of stuff. So it was a good idea. It just was led yeah. by a lunatic, <laughs> a megalomaniac, and and complete and you know. Uh, the board of directors completely failed in their duty to protect the stakeholders in that business and a lot of people were hurt and this guy Adam Newman pretty much I mean he didn't he's not going to be the first trillionaire as he wanted to be or or live forever I don't think or the the president of the world but he's living a pretty comfortable life at the expense of a lot of the people who worked under him for, for decades so uh, yes that was that that was the whole thing with WeWork it was just it was a good idea uh, but, you know, almost a fraud- fraudulent execution. <laughs> Absolutely. Emmett, you're our resident SPAC expert here at my Wall Street, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, looking at WeWork and looking at the option of going public via SPAC, do you, why do you think this option might be so attractive to the company and, and would you be interested? Well, today WeWork is invariably cheaper. 
it has more cash and it's more relevant than it was at the end of 2019 when I think in the studio when we could meet in person the three of us sat around chuckling at the S1. Am I yeah. right in saying that was written by Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin? Or is that Snapchat? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm pretty sure I we think found it was, out. Was it Newman's wife? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, fair, fair play to her. It was a creative S one. Uh, I, I, th- never... I think she worked. I think she worked for Gwyneth Paltrow's company, Goop. I think that oh, might have been. Oh, oh, sorry, right? Okay, I knew Gwyn- Gwyneth had her influence. It's it's all coming looks. together now. <laughs> <laughs> but let's just so let's remind ourselves. In late twenty nineteen, um, WeWork was valued at something like forty seven billion dollars, um, and it's only when we looked. At that S1, did we actually get to see how wobbly an operation it actually was? Yeah. And and by the end of that drama, I think the $47 billion valuation had been readjusted by a soft bank bailout and its valuation plunged to about $8 billion. So, um, you know, the whole we're floating story went away. SoftBank bailed out the business and they set about doing a restructure from the top. And as I said today, it is now a far leaner business. It has far more cash and it is absolutely far more relevant in a world where businesses are undecided as to what in fact they're going to do about their fixed uh, office strategy. So mm. some of the reports I was reading is that WeWork, you know, could be valued to around 10 billion at the moment and it has 3 billion cash in its balance sheet and it is still losing money. And and what I mean by that in Q3 of 2020, which is the last uh, where I could get information, it generated a just over 800 million bucks in revenue. Um, however, had kind of negative free cash flow of about $500 million. And that's really down to the fact that, you know, the pandemic affected their business and no one was allowed to go anywhere. But their their CEO, their their new CEO, Sandy Mathrani, I think is how you pronounce it, said that he expects uh, WeWork to be profitable this year. So we are looking at an entirely different business that mm. you could say is tarnished by the brand from a stock investing perspective, perhaps, but from a, a brand recognition in no way is it tarnished. It just we work as we work. So, um, yeah, so I, the, the rumor is that they in recent months have been talking with at least three SPACs. And I think the key thing for us to see when eventually uh, that SPACs S1 is made available that we um, or when we know which back it is that is is courting um, WeWork is to actually look at the value on the business because I actually think now is quite an interesting time for the business. That's one thing though that that maybe I want to talk a little bit more about is is the fact that by going public through a SPAC there'll be less scrutiny on WeWork I imagine because I think it's important to point out that it will be the, the SPAC so the, the special purpose acquisition companies S1 that people can yeah. see so WeWork themselves won't have to file an S1 would that be yeah. a big concern about you know what's actually going on in the company itself um it is certainly something to be cognizant of a big concern perhaps but I think what uh, what will happen if, in fact, WeWork goes to market via SPAC is they are going to go on a, the PR circuit in whichever way yeah. they so choose, because obviously they're avoiding the traditional IPO process. And and what we will look at is that there's probably going to be additional capital going into the business by means of private investors, which is known as a generally a private investment in public equity or a pipe, which you'll often see this pipe vehicle going beside a SPAC. And you've kind of two entities that you can look at so between the funds raised by the SPAC and the pipe from private investors WeWork could raise quite a lot of capital to fund its operations so one of the things we look at is how big a ball of money is headed onto that balance sheet and for what purpose is it being used and what's its current valuation and yes Mm. you're right James there are a lot of questions uh, that would be more comprehensively answered in an IPO process uh, but I think they're the main things we look at. So when when is this business going to get there, which in WeWork's case is cash flow break even or profit? And what value is it today? Because, you know, a couple of years ago, they were parading around with a nearly $50 billion valuation before we yeah. all fell off our chairs laughing. <laughs> and, as, and one thing you've mentioned before with SPACs as well is that it's very important to look at the sponsor of the SPAC, so the, the, the person who was leading the SPAC and kind of... Mm. It's, it's it's one of the ways you judge SPACs, I know, is that kind of judging Entirely. it off the person who's leading it. 
Yeah, are they, is this person, have they a track history of finding um, and closing great deals? And have they done something in the past that we can admire and say, well, you know what, at least this is how they, run, they ran the last operation. There's a huge amount of trust on the SPAC sponsor. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But there's so many SPACs. I think our colleague Jamie sent her in on Slack this morning. There's a SPAC launched called this is just another SPAC or something? Yeah. yeah. Just, <laughs> that's its name, or just another SPAC. Yeah. All right, so like, there you go. There are so many SPACs are now being called, this is just another SPAC. So I don't know. There yeah. are a lot of them out there. I- I'm sure we'll we'll definitely be coming back to whatever WeWork is up to in a future episode of this podcast. So. Yeah, um, r- people can read up on the WeWork fiasco in more depth in a great article by Charles Duhigg that was posted, I think, back in November on The New Yorker. I think it was called How Venture Capitalists Are Deforming Capitalism. That's a, yeah. a great insight into the how the board completely let everyone down on that one. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on and talk about some of the stuff going on in my Wall Street at the minute. We added a brand new stock to my Wall Street shortlist earlier this week. Rory, in the spirit of putting you on the spot constantly, I want you to give me a three-word pitch for the stock. Three-word? Yeah, nice and short. (laughs) Why do you mean on the spot like this? (laughs) (laughs) I just want three words to describe the new stock in the shortlist. Um, Come on, sell it to me. Innovative... Daring, tech-enabled. <laughs> That's terrible. Please cut that out. <laughs> Three words. I don't know. I, I think tech-enabled might be two words. I'm not sure. Or it's one, it's <laughs> one word joined with the little thingy. So don't forget that that fantastic new stock which Rory pitched so well there. In addition to the latest Stock at the Moment podcast and loads of great content is live in the My Wall Street app right now. If you're not a member of My Wall Street yet, you, but you want to catch up with all of this stuff, you can start your free trial with My Wall Street by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. Before we move on, I also want to mention that the sales window for the Horizon Investment Service is opening up again for a limited period at the end of next month. Emmett, you run Horizon. How has it been performing so far? So far, so good, James. So I've invested in 19 stocks and with my own family's money, uh, of which about half are up over 100%. The entire folio itself is up about 95% and it's 5x the S&P 500 in the same time period. So I'm happy with how it's going. There's a long road ahead, but I can tell you one thing. This is the defining project of my life. I'm investing my family's money with this. You know, it isn't just passive commentary this is the real deal so Mm. i'm out to try and create legendary returns with this service and the first year was great i mean we launched five weeks before the coronavirus crash uh, which was yeah exactly which tested the metal of our resolve but you know what we're doing okay but we have many more years to go and i'm going to invest a, a pretty large fixed sum every month going forward from around march so keep an ear out um, and we'll give you more information when that sales window is opening. So as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we have a special treat for you guys today instead of Jargon Busters. Earlier this week, Evan and I sat down to interview Norman Crowley exclusively for the Stock Club podcast. Norman is a serial entrepreneur based here in Ireland who founded and sold three businesses for over three quarters of a billion dollars before the age of 40. These days, Norman is working on tackling climate change through his various ventures, including his industrial energy efficiency company, Crowley Carbon, his solar energy company, Crowley Solar, and his electrical car company, Electrify. He has also worked in the past with Sir Richard Branson to set up the non-profit The Cool Planet Experience, designed to educate people on environmental responsibility. In this interview, we chatted with Norman about his experiences both as an entrepreneur and an investor, his work with the likes of Richard Branson and Shamat Palapatia, and his thoughts on the future of the EV industry. Enjoy. Norman, welcome to Stock Club. Delighted to have you with us today. How are you keeping? Yeah, great. Yeah, as good as can be expected in a global pandemic. Yeah, for sure. Norman, can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur to date, and in particular the companies that you've brought from foundation to flotation? Um, so started as an entrepreneur when I was 15 in West Cork um, and always kind of wanted to make money, I guess. Um, and because Ireland at the time was a pretty poor country and we used to watch all these TV shows about all these rich people in America. And so definitely a burning desire to, I guess, to create wealth. Um, and since I didn't have any qualifications, the only thing to do was set up my own business. So 
set up an engineering company when I was 15, doing welding jobs for local farmers, grew that up um, and grew it up while I was in school, actually, as well. A lot of people assume that I left school, but um, I, I did it uh, up until my leaving cert and then left school, kept working in the engineering business, sold that when I was 20 to a local builder. Um, and I always loved computers and messing around with computers and software. And so I set up a software company and a computer company and grew that from the time I was 20 to the time I was 28. And then we were very lucky that at the time the internet was starting to boom and we had got into the internet quite a lot. Uh, and then in 1998, we sold that company to Aircom. And at the ripe old age of 28, I retired. <laughs> um, and um, I retired for about five minutes because then I discovered that there was no crack in retirement, basically. And um, set up uh, the next company, which was Inspired Gaming Group. And that one set it up in the typical way you do a startup or we do a startup, which is a friend of mine worked for William Hill. Um, and I was meeting him in London and I was waiting for him in a betting shop and I'd never been in the betting shop. And I was looking at these really old looking fruit machines that they had. And I was, and this was 2000, like, and I was going, what are you doing with these things? Like, this should be all digital broadband and all that. And he said, like, well, if you think it's that easy, why don't you do it? And so not knowing anything about gaming or slot machines, we built what became... In six years, we went from nowhere to 70% of every gaming machine in the UK was ours. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so we floated that company in 2006 on the London Stock Exchange. Um, at the time, it had revenues of about 300 million. And we then continued to grow it. Uh, and the famous story is that we almost sold that business for a billion bucks um, in 2007. We were minutes away when the whole Lehman Brothers um, thing came crashing down. And wow. um, so we had, we had to settle in the end for selling it in 2008 for a half a billion bucks. Um, and that journey takes us up to now, which is after we sold that, we decided to that if we were going to do another business, that it would have to be mission-led, that it would have to mean something for the world. And the platform that we decided to pick was climate change. And climate change is the most existential threat facing the world. Um, and so we decided to fight that battle, set up a business called Crowley Carbon First, which is big industrial energy efficiency company operating now in 23 countries around the world. Um, and then widening that out. Uh, so what we do um, is we look at the top three climate problems in the world. And the top three climate problems are energy, transport, food. And we have key um, businesses in each of those areas. So energy, Crowley Carbon, and our software company, Clarity. Um, transport, Electrify, which we might talk a bit about. And then... Um, food, we have a new startup in that area that we're not really going to talk about yet, um, but it's in the area of cellular agriculture, which is going to turn the world completely on its head uh, over the next five years. Um, and then we also have an education group to educate people on climate change in a more positive way, rather than trying to use guilt to get people to do something which never works. Yeah, Norman, we'll come back to to, to your, your new ventures, I suppose, in a minute. But one thing I wanted to touch on was I know, you know, in your personal life, you're an investor as well. And going back to the company that you floated on the London Stock Exchange um, a decade or so ago, I suppose what I'm interested in finding out is as an investor and also as an entrepreneur who, who brought a company to flotation, do you find that gives you an edge or gives you any different insight on, on your investments? Uh, no. <laughs> it's um it teaches you not to float another company it's not yeah. a great way as an investor as a founder investor it's not a great way of making money actually because investors that come in on a flotation don't really want you to make any money um, or they certainly don't want you selling any shares so that simple premise you have of i will float this company and make a fortune yeah um is maybe it's not a great premise. It's much, if you want to do well as a founder, then keep it private for as long as is humanly possible. 
And then when there's almost no value left, then float it. And that's what's happening now, a huge amount in, in the public markets, right? Yeah, and I suppose that's what we all have to be so careful of with, with the flood of IPOs, you know, that we saw last year, particularly that there's a lot of great companies out there that it's great to get exposure to. But there's also a lot of companies that have maybe reached the end of their, their as far as they can go in, in private terms. Absolutely. Yeah. And pa- like Palantir has gone up a good bit, but I thought Palantir was was like that. You know, they take the look. They picked a lot of the meat on that on, off that bone by the time they floated, right? Yeah, um, a bunch of others, and that's where the likes of Chamath, Palihapitiya on the SPAC thing is good because you can invest in IPO A, B, C, D, and E, um, and then you get in early, right? Mm. And the only problem with that is you're relying on whoever the promoter is that they are good and ethical, and that you're not buying any rubbish, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, well, it's funny bringing it back to a mission-led business. Have you a personal mission, Norman? Like, it's a, a little bit of a little bit of a lofty question, but have you a, a legacy in mind? Um, I don't know whether legacy is the word I'd use. I, I, I think people look at me and they think I'm a real do-gooder because we work so much on climate change. But actually, working on things that solve problems for other people. Um, is a very selfish act on one case because like we wake up in the morning and we get to see the good about what we're doing both in and we see that in two ways one is giving employment and giving people careers and a path in life is very very fulfilling for us you know and we take that very personally and then the other one is we you know, doing good for the planet or is is also incredibly rewarding and much more so than if we were in the plastics industry or something, right? So, so people think that we're all holier than thou, where in actual fact, it's actually quite a selfish act being mission-led because you could just get, you get huge financial rewards and you get huge personal rewards as well, you know. Yeah, it's it's really I suppose spotting spotting the gap in the market, which is what every mm. company tries to do, or every successful mm. company tries to do, depending mm. on the market. Yeah, and also then if you're trying to solve something as big as climate change, all the numbers are explosive, right? Mm. And all the valuations are explosive. So, but if you try and fake it, if you don't care, and you're really in climate to make money, then people can smell that a mile away off you, yeah. right? So you really, if you don't. If you don't care, then don't bother getting into the space. You really do have to want it to happen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to do a bit of name dropping here, Norman. And I believe you've collaborated with uh, Sir Richard Branson in the past. What mm-hmm. can you tell us about that? Um, Surely a very, very interesting <laughs> man, I imagine. Yeah, he's very interesting. Um, he's a fascinating guy and he's incredibly impressive. He's very driven, actually. And yeah. he doesn't my takeaway from Richard is he doesn't have any doubt, right? So if you go to him and you say, this isn't working, Richard, because of this, this, and this, he just goes, well, just fix it because this needs to get sorted. So just fix it. And I love that about him. I don't love it about him when he's challenging you, but I love it about him in general. So he's a very impressive cat. Uh, But we, you know, we're very lucky as the business grow and our name gets out there that we, we get to spend time with Richard. We get to spend time with a lot of other heavy hitters in the space as well. Um, and when you're younger and less experienced, you suffer a lot from what entrepreneurs call imposter syndrome, which is you believe you're not good enough to be in this position. Um, I guess the more time that goes on and the more you you kind of become aware, you take it for granted more that you could just pick up the phone to Chamath or, or, or yeah. Richard or whatever, right? And that they would respect you and respect your views. Um, and the imposter syndrome kind of fades a little bit. And we're very lucky to have that, that we can phone these people. Um, Tell us a little bit, Norman, about your new venture. You mentioned, you know, your roll call of businesses, and, and I think it's led to the birth of Ava, and you mentioned Electrify. So to talk to us about Ava. Um, so... Ava is our new brand and it's our new consumer brand and it's part of Electrify Group. We started Electrify Group in 2019 um, and Electrify Group tackles a part of the market. If you think about electric cars and the world is going to go electric um, and anyone who doubts that just isn't looking at the data, frankly, right? Um, And as cars go electric, a lot of what's going to happen is people are going to buy new cars and new trucks and new vans, right? But there is a huge amount of install base of existing vehicles out there. 
Um, and so if we're going to go electric, two things have to happen. We have to buy new vehicles, but also we have to convert a huge amount of the vehicles that we already have. Um, and there are, you're talking tens of millions of vehicles. Um, and so if you're going to do that in Ireland, if you're going to build a conversion business, basically, you can't start off by converting, you know, three-year-old Subaru legacies, right? <laughs> the, the money is not in it. And Ireland doesn't have a track record in automotive as well. It has a small bit, but not much. So we decided first to tackle converting classic cars because it's a higher end of the market. And it's a fascinating startup story. When we said to people, we're going to convert classic cars to electric, everybody thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> like there was nobody thought it was a good idea. Like classic, <laughs> classic car nerds thought it was just a disgrace uh, and a disgusting thing to do. And then car people like Jaguar Land Rover and these established car companies just thought it would never work. And so... You know, when people say it's really important to do market research, well, in this case, if you did the market research, everybody would have told you it was a terrible idea. <laughs> so, so we started off by converting classics. And it turns out that when you convert a classic car, it's, it's the perfect embodiment, right? It looks beautiful, but it's reliable and it's fast. And it's all the things that you want, basically, and none of the things you don't want. Um, and that business, uh, which we, we set up the first factory in Wales, um, that business sold out and it's currently sold out until 2023. And wow. um, you, we just cannot get enough volume into the factory. Um, not helped by COVID, but certainly just the volume is massively there. Um, and so we've opened now in, in Iscari in Ireland, another factory. And so that was the first thing, big success. Where Ava came from then is we wanted to build a car from scratch um, in Ireland, an electric car um, with classic styling. And so we went to two of the most famous car designers in the world, Peter Brock, who designed the Corvette Stingray in 1957, um, and Ian Callum, Sir Ian Callum, who last month was nominated by GQ as designer of the year. Um, and we asked them, would they work with us on that journey? And it's a real coming of age of Ireland, right? Um, in fact, when we publicized this a couple of weeks ago, some journalists were saying like, but why would these guys work with an Irish company? Yeah. And we were like, well, why wouldn't they work with an Irish company? Right? <laughs> um, and so, so what we're doing, and, and you're going to be able to see this image around about the 25th of February, is we're... Uh, we're announcing the first car that's the output of that. So it's been very weird during COVID. We've been designing a multi-million hypercar um, on Zoom uh, with <laughs> one team in Nevada, <laughs> Peter Brock's team, one team in the UK, and then our team in Dublin. So um, so it's it's a very much a modern story of how I you think, design I think you're making a bull case for Zoom shares there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I have sold out right here on me. <laughs> so, so that's Ava. And then the final, and then people look at it and they kind of go, oh, it's just Norm indulging his passion for cars and playing around with these big designers. But then the final thing we're doing, which is, is the ultimate cash cow, is we're taking all that expertise and knowledge and using it to retrofit specialist vehicles. So... So what's a specialist vehicle? It could be anything from a mining support vehicle, an airport support vehicle. It mm. could be a hotel concierge car. Um, but, and there are lots of these vehicles, like millions of these vehicles in the world. And we're converting those to electric and doing it as what we call VAS, vehicle as a service, right? It's where we don't sell you the vehicle afterwards. We convert it. And then you get to use it and we manage that as a service for you. Nice. So and kind that's, of a, a recurring revenue model. Oh, big time. And that is a multi-billion play. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that is and that's very that is very exciting. I mean, so it's it's uh automotive as a service, really. It's, and it's huge. It's like so you don't need like I'll give you a, a one that floated. So there's a company with very similar numbers two hours floated on a SPAC before Christmas, if that's even how you use that sentence, they SPAC'd before Christmas, called Excel Fleet, right? And our numbers would be pretty close in terms of revenue EBITDA margins to Excel Fleet, right? And our recurring income model would be much stronger than Excel Fleet, right? 
And Excel Fleet's market cap is 2.5 billion right now. Okay. Mm. So that's mm. so the, the thing people were doing in 2019 and 2020 with Norm just indulging his passion for cars, now they're looking at it going, oh, that's why they're doing it. You've clearly thought through the entire experience, Norman, and the brands, uh, you know, very, very premium, what I presume is ultimately moving into mass market. Am I correct in saying you have a two million book car in production? Yes. So the the, the first AV you'll see images of in a couple of weeks um, is the price tag of that is 1.2 to 2 million bucks. And the first six are sold. So, so 22's output is fully sold because this is not a high volume automobile. Yeah. And, uh, and the interest from the US, that's a very US centric car. And when you see it, you'll see immediately that it looks like an American classic. And when you see that, you'll realize why it's the American car. But we're going to have that car at Pebble Beach this year and later in the year. And it's going to be a Salon Privé. So this is, and you know, this is a big message for anyone from Ireland listening. This is like Ireland coming of age, right? And like enough apologizing for who we are. Like this is two of the best car designers in the world working with our team who are Irish, but who are ex-Williams, ex-McLaren, you know, serious operators, right? And all coming together in Ireland to do this. And it's it's a great story of Ireland in 2021, right? Which is not this backwater. It is right at the pinnacle of electric car production. Yeah. Uh, just to move on from that, Norman, and I, I think the listeners of Stock Club would kill me if I didn't ask a man so involved in the electric car industry about the main players at the moment, which I suppose is Tesla and, and to a certain extent, Neo in China as well. What are your thoughts on those? I suppose they're in a different, I suppose, part of the EV industry to you at the moment in the fact that they're producing brand new cars, whereas you're heavily involved in the retrofitting of, of existing cars. But what are your thoughts on those, especially, I suppose, Tesla's massive run up in the last year mm-hmm. or so? Yeah. Look, if you're if you can buy Tesla and hold it for five years, then even at the current price, I would. You know, really? this is yeah. Elon, like my stocks, Elon like is a once in a lifetime entrepreneur, right? And I don't know, did you listen this weekend to that inferior Joe Rogan podcast? But <laughs> like he did three hours of Joe Rogan this weekend, yeah. And it's a masterclass in just genius you know, um, in one place, right, in one brain. And so, yeah, it's definitely overvalued at the moment. But if you can hold it, I would hold it. And it's a once in a lifetime. And it's not just, people say to me, like, well, people come out with some outlandish statements. I'm sure you hear them all the time. People say, well, if he, if he sold every car in the world, it wouldn't be worth what it's worth now. Mm. Well, actually, that's not true, right? If you sold every car in the world, it would be worth way more than it's worth now. Yeah. And, then, and then there's the battery tech and there's all the other things. A great example of how people misunderstand Tesla is if a tiny percentage of the people who own Teslas now and are going to buy Teslas use their full self, their self-driving, their FSD, their full self-driving, if they opted for that service on a pay-as-you-go model, right? So what do we mean by that? You're leaving Dublin and you're driving to see your mum in Cork like me, right? and you decide to use full self-driving as pay as you go. So you yeah. pay two bucks for the journey, okay? Um, and then the car will drive you to Cork, okay? Then that's 40 billion revenue every year to them straight to the bottom line, even if it's only a tiny percentage of the people who own Teslas and will own Teslas do it. But people completely misunderstand the potential of that stock. Yeah, and uh, this leads me on to my next question, which is, you know, from from... From what you've said there, I, I get the impression that you think Tesla is not fairly valued right now, but for where it's going, it will look like a bargain maybe in a few years. But what I, I suppose I want to ask you then is where do you see the future of the EV industry as a whole in, let's say, 10 years' time? You know, something you've mentioned there is, um, well, we know Tesla is heavily involved in, you know, battery production and stuff like that. But you also have mentioned, you know, the idea of, of cars as a service rather than a one-off purchase quite a lot. You know, in, in, in 10 years' time, when, when you're driving from Dublin to Cork, what do you imagine the EV landscape will look like in Ireland and maybe globally? Yeah, um, it'll go vehicle as a service and it'll destroy pretty much all of the incumbents. Like, I suspect two of the existing incumbent automotives will survive and the rest will be wiped, in our opinion. And, and in particular... Um, um, I would think Volkswagen Audi will probably survive uh, the group. 
Um, and I think a lot of the others, I think Mercedes really need to wake up like Daimler. What are you thinking at the moment? Like, you know, with this very slow, non-committal rubbish with, you know, announcing cars out in 2024, give me a break. Like, you know, yeah. and so, so that's what we think there. Whereas we think the, the Neos of the world, the Teslas will just grow and grow. I'm more familiar with Tesla. I'm not a holder in Neo, but what we do on our personal stocks is we have like seven pillars basically that we invest in and and we we only invest in them right so not no interest in owning exxon and thinking it's a cheap stock like yeah, in yeah, our yeah. opinion one way bet and it's all down and fine maybe you'll get a year out of it now but please like and so the and our major themes are what we stick to basically and and so far so good yeah, yeah. Very, very exciting, Norman. So tell me, will we have a chance to invest in Ava someday? What do you think? Yeah, certainly. I, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and it, certainly in the wider group, because the wider group will do something where people will have an ability to invest in it. But at the moment, we're staying private. And thankfully, there's a huge demand for the stock in the private markets. Yeah. I get the sense that you might be getting somebody else to do all the nuts and bolts of the flotation process. <laughs> <laughs> Or yeah, maybe well, Mr. Palapatia. Uh, I might be chairman, but I'm certainly not going to be CEO, I can tell you at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. Norman, how do we find out more about Ava and you? Um, the best place to go is uh, studioava.com, um, which is the main website. And if you're anyway into cars, you will absolutely love that website. So Norman, thanks a million for joining us today. It was a pleasure uh, to chat to you and hopefully we'll get you on again soon. So thanks a million to Norman for joining us on the podcast and we'll hope to get him on again soon. So elevator pitch guys and this week I want you guys to give me a stock that has traded like a cyclical. So in other words it stayed within a defined range. Emmett I'm going to come to you first. What stock are you pitching for us this week? Yeah I remember you know when we got the internet at home my childhood you know my my dad or at least in my late teens my dad started to buy and sell shares in Smurfit which is an Irish maker of cardboard boxes and container boards and paper and packaging and that kind of stuff it was an insanely boring cyclical business but the thing about a cyclical stock is that it generally moves within a defined range or predictable yeah. range and as a consequence you can kind of buy and sell and buy and sell and if it continues to trade with inside that range there's opportunity to make some money along the way so um the, you know i'm not going to stick with the absolute textbook of a cyclical stock but generally you'll find that cyclical stocks are moving up or down along with an economy so i'm going to go with the stock that I know Rory and I have looked at repeatedly and debated and I never quite made it into my Wall Street's real estate and it's the it was was known as the Chinese Netflix which is called E Kiwi. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> the, <laughs> kiwi. Kiwi kiwi. And it, something like that. And its ticker <laughs> is a far more pronounceable IQ. <laughs> which clearly I'm lacking when it comes to uh, Chinese pronunciation. And it's a it's a twenty billion dollar business and and the reason I think that it's one of those, it's it's sticking within it. For the last two and a half years, it's traded between something like 28 books and it, then it's dropped down to something like 16 books and then it rises again. So it's kind of this stock that just has been on this up, down, up, down trajectory, 26, 27 books, falls all the way down to 16 books, climbs up to 25 books, falls all the way down to 15 books and it currently is sitting at around 25 books so based on nothing <laughs> other than looking at the graph <laughs> and extrapolating the cyclical pattern that i can see uh, i wouldn't be shocked if equi uh, falls from its current 25 books to something like 16 or 17 books in the weeks and months ahead so there's absolutely no uh, intellectual firepower behind that call other than the shape of the graph <laughs> is that our is that our new disclaimer we put on our, our stock pitches <laughs> absolutely no intellectual firepower behind this rory over to you what stock are you picking uh yeah i'll go with one that i'm actually a shareholder in it's a company called cognex um which is kind of, it's in that kind of uh business hardware zone which you tend to see kind of cycles in because com what happens is 
companies invest heavily in it and then you get a kind of couple of years out of it before they kind of go to an upgrade cycle. So Cognex for years had very rapid revenue growth and up in kind of, so by the way, Cognex, if people don't know, are the makers of the eyes for robots. They're uh, robotic visual devices that um, do everything from helping to, to, to print money is their kind of main thing. Most dollars you have in your pocket are probably um, scanned through a, a Cognex machine at one point, but they're also, like Apple's one of their biggest customers for trying to find defects in any of their equipment or any of their, their screens. Uh, so Cognex went through a, a rapid revenue growth period up throughout the the early noughties and then kind of in the 11s, 12s just revenue was completely flat because they weren't selling selling any new gear then another rapid rise up through into kind of 2018 and then again revenue went totally flat and once again we're seeing like an uptick yeah. in it and, and it's been um part of a kind of narrative that's been going on about digital transformation and companies investing heavily into to digitize their business post post corona so that's one i'm keeping an eye on and i'm a share a long-term shareholder so happy to see it, it getting back on its uh getting i back imagine some a company like cognex it's it's very tied to the people that supplies the the robot eyes as you call them too so would that be a reason mm. for the typical nature of it well it's not necessarily i mean companies like the companies that they supply their biggest um customer is apple so I mean, they're definitely if, if they're tied to their customer, it's not due to Apple not performing well. It's 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 more that companies tend to dedicate certain years to big infrastructure investment, uh, and then they've got the the gear in there. They don't need to buy any more for a couple of years, uh, and then you know eventually the, the Cognex come out with a, a new a new update, a new version of the software, a new version of the hardware, and they they upgrade to it in order to to uh, optimize. So it kind of, I don't know, do I, am I kind of cheating there? It's not ah. really a cyclical, I suppose, but it kind of goes through, it kind of goes through, uh, you know, periods of growth, and yeah. periods of flattening out. And, and I won't be again. able to come back in the next episode and say, well, congratulations, Emmett, your stock performed like a cyclical over the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe this one hasn't been as excited as the last few, but maybe we need to calm down a little bit with our, our wild <laughs> pitches. Um, so that's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street as always. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. I was looking at the email address before and we've we've loads of questions for Jargon Busters for the next few weeks. So we'll get to all that we can um, in the next few weeks. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club 2. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.